more. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. I believe we should have it on the... You just follow as I read. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist, some versions say a vapor, that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is what? Evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him or her it is sin. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you asking you to speak to us through your word, counsel us through the scripture. We thank you that we can come to your word with confidence, knowing that it is a word that is without error. It is a completed work. It is a word, Lord, that is pure to our hearts. May the Holy Spirit apply this word from heaven to our lives Lord, in the way that the Spirit does so well, we come before you humbly. God, if you do not speak to us, we have met in vain. But we beg of you, ask of you to speak to us now. Counsel us, instruct us, admonish us, correct us through your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In verse 14, the New Living Translation, Sean used that, and I love the New Living Translation. Translation. It's an updated uh, version of the Living Bible. But verse 14 reads this way. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. James is correct in reminding us that life is like a mist. Like that morning mist or the, the vapor or... Uh, it's here today, it's short, there's no guarantees about tomorrow. You may be saying, now, you've already got me depressed. I came in here to be cheered up, and now you got me depressed. But see, as Christians, we are constantly, we're calling, the series is the gospel on the ground. We're constantly looking uh, to remind ourselves uh, to reset our minds on things that are not of the earth, but are things that are above. We're always readjusting because this world culture is very seductive. It is constantly drawing you in to make you adopt its values, its lifestyle. And so when we come to the Word on Sunday or when you open the Word during the day of the week, you're you're resetting your mind on what is true. And that's what we want to do this morning. And so that's why, again, James is correct that life is like a mist. Billy Graham, who is 96 years old, what a life. I love Billy Graham, lived a life and has lived a life of honor, of integrity. And we give the Lord thanks for uh, his life. 96 years of age. Listen, he was asked by a university student, What is the greatest surprise that you have found? about your life. And Dr. Graham said, the brevity of it. 
the shortness of it. He said, I replied without hesitation. Time moves so quickly, and no matter who we are or what we have done, the time will come when our lives will be over. Jesus said, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus, James, the word of God talks about the temporariness of life. Living today and I of eternity. We live for today. We, we, we live for what's in front of us. But the Bible says we need to live in light of eternity. And so this morning as we look at God's word, we want to hear what God would have us to learn here. And so the big idea here in this passage is, is this. Because life is a mist or a vapor, we should humble ourselves before God and obey His will. That's real profound, isn't it? Life is short. Humble yourself before God and obey what God says. Now, just by way of real quick review in the book of James to remind us where we're at and where we've come. You realize we've been in the book of James since uh, February, the first Sunday in February. Um, we have been looking at what it means to live authentic Christianity. What does it mean to have the gospel on the ground? It's one thing to pontificate and and believe in these great doctrines of the church, but what good is it? James even says faith without works is dead. What good is it, right, if we do not uh, live it out? And uh, by the way, that was my error. It should be 13 through 17 up there, but in case somebody notices that, but... uh, James says in verse 4, 1 through 12, what we looked at last week, he addresses conflict. Notice how he begins. Again, James is a pastor. He's the half-brother of Jesus. He's a pastor of the local church at Jerusalem, and he's writing this to, uh, to counsel and encourage the flock of God. Many of them have scattered and have left Jerusalem because of the intense persecution that is facing the Christians there in the uh, early uh, first century. And so James talks in verses 1 through 12. We looked at this last week. He says, look at verse 1. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Oh, my goodness. You mean there's quarrels and fights in the church? Oh, my, I'm quitting right now. Yeah, because you've got a lot of imperfect people acting like they're perfect, and you've got a lot of quarrels and arguments and fights. Because many of them are doing what? Because, he said, it's because your passions are at war with you. Last week we said, look, the reason you have conflict in your life, the reason you have conflict in your marriage, in your family, the reason you're just always at tense with people is because you are at conflict or at war with yourself. Why are you at war with yourself? Because you're not at peace with God. That's last week's sermon in one minute. Okay? You say, why couldn't you have done that last week? Well, I didn't. (laughs) And there's this conflict. Look at verse 4. He calls them, you adulterous people. That's not very pastoral. What if I got up and did the welcome and greeting and I said, hi, adulterers, how are you doing today? Welcome to Grace Church. But what is an adulterer? It's one who changes or has affections for another. And he says, do you not know, verse 4, that friendship with the world is enmity or hatred 
to God. You can't be a friend of this world's culture. James is saying you're going to be in conflict with each other because you're in conflict with yourself. As Jesus would say in Matthew 6, you cannot serve two masters. And so he comes to this place where he's addressing this this arrogant spirit that people who profess Christ have a worldly attitude, a wor- an attitude and a heart that's more congruent with what is happening in the culture than what is happening in the church. In 1 John 2.15, he calls it the boastful pride of life. Living life, James is addressing in the verses that we read, addressing life as though God doesn't matter. Living life as though God is non-existent. Oh, he's out there somewhere, you know, tending to the angels and repairing harps and floating on cl- doing whatever God does. But the reality is, is that he really has no connection to my life. He has no connection or involvement. I don't really pray to him. I never even think about it. I just kind of do my thing. I come to church because, you know what? I came to church when I was a little boy, I got married, my wife went to church, and it's just kind of the thing I do, but you know, I'm ready to leave, I don't think about it, I don't think about God, I don't think about anything, when it's all done, God has no part in my life. That's the people that James is trying to shake, that James is trying to counsel and say, wait, you can't live that way and claim to be a believer. St. Augustine, not uh, Augustine, Florida, but St. Augustine, who was um, lived in the first or the second century, was an early uh, church theologian, philosopher, and he had a classic statement. Listen to this. And when you first hear it, you're like, oh, that doesn't sound right, but just listen to it. Let me explain it. He had this classic statement where he said, love God and do as you please. Now think about that for a minute. You think, wow, wait, that, that, that's, that sounds a little radical. What is he saying? He meant, when he said, love God and do as you please, he meant pursue God's glory, follow him with abandon, and passionately desire his pleasure. If I really love God, then guess what? What pleases me, you with me? Pleases him. Jesus, I think that's what he meant when he said, ask anything in my name. Oh, great. It's like a little magic formula. No. Ask anything, Jesus said, that I can put my name to. If I can't put my name to it, don't ask. My name is consistent in my relationship. But see, we've turned it around. Instead of loving God and do as you please, it's do as you please and don't worry about God. That's kind of the mentality that we often have in our church life. Stephen Sharnock was a Puritan. Some of you know what that, who those folks are. They were a, um, a, a believers who pretty much lived during the 16th and 17th century, wrote tremendous heartfelt theology and works of devotion and piety to God. And they're, they're, my library's filled with many, many of them. And I love them. I call them the old dead guys because they can write more in one paragraph than some of the nonsense paperback books that are sold in the Christian bookstores today. They had a depth of relationship and devotion with God that just oozed in the writings and the sermons 
that they preached. And one of the most well-known was by the name of Stephen Sharnock, who wrote a two-volume set that I have. And I would encourage you, you could spend your entire life devouring the words of this book. And it's called The Existence and Attributes of God by Stephen Sharnock. And it just and he has the first chapter there, and the first chapter is called Practical Atheism. That's what James is talking about right here. Oh, we, you know, we don't like Bill Maher. We don't like Richard Dawkins, those evolutionists and those militant anti-God atheists. Oh, we'll get us all riled up. But what you know, not the proclaiming atheists. What about the practical atheists? Practical, what do you mean practical atheists? Those are the ones who have a language of Christianity, but their life reflects as though God does not really exist. He's not a part of their life. He's not involved in their life. Jesus talks about a group of people in Matthew 7 where he said, there will be those who come to me on that day, on that day of judgment where they are before Jesus. The Bible says that every knee shall bow. Okay. By the way, it's better to bow the knee to his lordship now than later because now you do it as savior, later it's judge. That's, a little, that's free. That's extra. I'm not going to charge you for that one, okay? He said, there will be those that come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, do we not do all the... And we're talking about, you know, we cast out demons, we healed, we did all this. And Jesus said, I never knew you. Now, that word knew, K-N-E-W, that's the word in the old King James where it says, Adam knew Eve. And they had a child. Do I have to draw pictures for you? Okay. An intimate relationship. Not God and his sovereign omniscience knows. No. There was no intimate relate. I never knew you. We weren't, we weren't on speaking terms. There was no, you did your thing, but I wasn't a part of it. My worst fear as a pastor is to be a part of a church that Jesus says, I don't know what you were doing, but it wasn't about me. Hello? That's, that's something we should be concerned with. Stephen Sharnock called it practical atheism. Let me read you something very briefly of what Stephen Sharnock, C-H-A-R-N-O-C-K. I think you can, it's public domain, so you can even get it free and read it online. He says this about practical atheism. All sin is founded in a secret atheism. Atheism is disbelief in God. Secret atheism. Atheism is the spirit of every sin. All the floods of impieties or uh, non-relational actions towards God, things, sins, all floods of impieties in the world break in at the gate of a secret atheism, an attitude of the heart. All the wicked inclinations in the heart and struggling motions, secret desires, self-applauding confidences in our own wisdom, strength, envy, ambition, revenge are sparks from this latent fire of secret atheism. The language of every one of these is, I would be a lord to myself 
and would not have a God over me. Every sin is a kind of cursing God in the heart. Every sin you and I committed this week, it was as if we cursed God to his face. An aim, listen to this, an aim at the destruction of the being of God. That's what he's talking about, sin. And I'll make this comment. When we sin, we are not disbelieving the existence of God. That's not what... We are disbelieving God himself. In that moment, we do not believe God is worth our love, our honor, our obedience, our worship. We are acting as if God is dead. That's practical atheism. The Bible says that's something that we need to be warned against. Look with me at three observations from James 4, 13 through 17. Now that I got you in a good mood, let me ramp it up. Three observations. I want us to look this morning at a reality to affirm, a reminder to acknowledge, and thirdly, a reasoning to avoid. Number one, a reality to affirm. Verse 13, James 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Someone wrote this about time. When as a child I laughed and wept, time crept. When as a youth I dreamed and talked, time walked. When I became a full-grown man, time ran. Soon I shall be passing on, time gone. James is sobering us up to remind us, verse 13 and 14... The frailty of life. Life is frail. It's fragile. He says, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. He's addressing a fictional group there, but really it could be any of us that go about our plans and we have strategies and all these things. But he says, there's, some, there's nothing wrong with planning, but there's an arrogance and a lack of acknowledging that my best laid plans are laid before a sovereign God who knows the end from the beginning, who has all things under control. He says, you do not know. I think about those who went to work on September 11, 2001. Just a regular day. Taking calls, got bills to pay. The 11th, kind of in that first... You know, things that are due around those first week or ten days. You know, the mortgage, the rent, the car payment. You know, whatever. Just a regular day. Their coffee hadn't even cooled before the first jet crashed into the first tower. And before they could even realize what was happening, the second jet crashed into the second tower. And before it was all said and done, 2,600 people died, died, thinking that that weekend they're going to take a weekend trip 
with the grandkids. Thinking that, boy, I'm glad I've got next week off on vacation. I've waited all summer and that next week in September, I'm going to go up to Canada. I'm going to do something. All the plans changed in a moment. Our life is like a mist. It's a vapor, James says. Sherry mentioned our pastor that we served with, Jeremy Robinson, who took a vacation in the summer of 2013. Going to New York City, Washington, D.C. Having a little pain in his lower side and thought maybe he just pulled a muscle. Kind of as guys do, and I guess some ladies, we just tough it out. We don't like going to doctors and ER. You know, we just want to avoid all that. And as they went to Washington and walked around, the pain got more and more bothersome. And as they went down to southeastern Virginia, finally he figured, I better check in to go over to Chesapeake General there in Chesapeake, Virginia, go in the ER because it feels like I'm getting one of those kidney stones. But it wasn't a kidney stone. Doctor did the examination and said, all I can tell you is you need to get home and see your physician as soon as possible. That's not something you want to hear, ever. Barely made it back to St. Louis. Took the train, tram, that took him from the airport over to Barnes Jewish Hospital there in downtown St. Louis, one of the most world-renowned hospitals. Collapsed on the train out of pain. Made it finally, and by the time... That was uh, late Sunday night. I got the phone call from his wife because they kind of kept all that under hush-hush, not sharing what all it was all about. But somewhere about midnight to 1 o'clock, they determined that there was a uh, cancerous mass that attached itself to both kidneys. It had broken up and it had gotten into his lung, to his heart, And so they were looking at at least an 8 to 10 hour surgery. And as I went into that room, we literally were saying goodbye to each other. He was in a way of trying to make light of it, talking about seeing my uncle in heaven. And he was saying goodbye to his teenage daughters because the chances they were very realistic um, were not good. Well, God in His grace, the surgery was only four hours. And within a 48-hour period, he's drinking a milkshake and things are looking great. That's the summer. He gets better. He's back in the pulpit doing ministry and bugging us and going back to his type A ways. And everything's back to normal. That's supposed to be a little humor because we love him, all right? January, they find a spot on his brain surmising that maybe somehow something goes in and gets surgery for that. Mind you, he's, he's going to one of the best cancer institutes in Chicago, Arizona. They removed that successfully. Things are looking good. They're, they're, but still, there is that mass on those kidneys. It couldn't remove a kidney because it had a, attached itself to both. Looking at experimental drugs and treatments, this, that, and the other, it's all said and done. He died this past January, and he was only 47 years old. So 
life is frail. Let's not kid ourselves. But not only is it frail, and we're reminded in James that we need to affirm ourselves to this reality that life goes quick, but it's just that. It's short. Life is short. Life is short. It's, a, it's like a vapor. It's like a mist. You, you know, you, you see it one moment, and a few minutes later, it's gone. Uh, steam coming out of your coffee cup is gone. Uh, my wife carries matches with her. No, I'm kidding. She doesn't. I had to find them, or somebody found them in the kitchen. But I thought that's exactly what he's saying, is that life is like a vapor, not the flame. That's not what he's saying life is. This is life. That's it. That's 78, 80 years. That's whatever. It's gone. Where'd it go? It's going to dissipate in the atmosphere. That's life. James is saying life is short. Don't be blinded to that reality. The psalmist, Moses, one of the psalms attributed to Moses... Psalm 90, verse 10, the years of our life are 70, and even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. But then he goes on to say in verse 12 of Psalm 90, so Lord, teach us. You know when you say teach me, that means you don't know. Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. That means we don't know how to pray. So when the psalmist says teach us, It means teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Carl Sandburg, who probably know more for his study of Abraham Lincoln, made this statement. Time is the coin of your life. It is the only coin you have. And only you will determine how it will be spent. I think one of the realities of first coming into ministry is realizing... Um, the brevity of life. I've done a lot of funerals. I've done funerals for young children, babies in fact, all the way through folks that were, I think maybe the oldest was well into their late 90s, early hundreds. People say, well, you know, when you're in the ministry, you're you're not dealing with real life. Let me tell you something. We deal with real life all the time. Too much of real life that goes on. The brevity of life. Again, Billy Graham made this statement. As we grow older, we should focus not only on the present, but more and more on heaven. This world, with all its pains and sorrows and burdens, isn't our final home. If we know Christ, hear that. If we know Christ, we know we have an inheritance that can never perish Spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, First Peter 1.4. I know, he says, Billy Graham says, I know it won't be long before I'll be going there. And I look forward to that day. Heaven gives us hope and makes our present burdens easier to bear. That's the good news of the believer. It's not that we have some morbid obsession about death. It's just that we are realistic in knowing that our existence here is not it. I remember listening to Geraldo Rivera He was trying to summarize. Somebody asked him a question, and they said, what is your philosophy of life? He says, you live, you do stuff, and you die. I thought, how sick that is. 
How unappealing that is. Life is quick. It's short and it's certain. George Bernard Shaw said that the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one people die. So there is a reality to affirm. The Bible says, and it's appointed unto man or woman, humans to die once. And after that comes the judgment. Secondly, not only a reality to affirm, but there's a reminder to acknowledge. Now this is where we get encouraged. God is in control. God is sovereign. We use that word a lot around here when we talk about the sovereignty of God. That speaks of the rulership of God, the the reign of God, the controlling of God. And so here you've got folks that James, Pastor James, is addressing and they are... They're doing good. They're, they're making plans. They're, they're expanding their business. They're looking at buying new land and buying new equipment and doing all these things. And guys, there is nothing wrong with planning. The Bible in many places affirms planning. This idea that sovereignty means fatalism, that I'm just going to let whatever happen, happens, that's a, that's a perverted view of the sovereignty of God. That is not the sovereignty of God little freebie, if you were here on Wednesday in 1 Samuel 23, do you remember David inquired of the Lord about, should I go and rescue these folks, at, you know, and whatever, and the Lord says, and he prayed, he said, now if I go, is Saul going to capture me? And the Lord says, yes, if you do such and such, this is what's going to happen. What did David do? Well, sovereignty of God, I guess it's time for me to die. No, David exercised his free will and said, I ain't going to do that. I'm going to do the opposite. You see, the Bible has no problem in marrying the sovereignty of God with the free will of man. You say, how does that work? Well, listen, we'll find out in about 20 billion years maybe. But until that time, God has no problem, and we affirm both truths that we are not robots. God works through our will, but He is in control. We never out-trump God. We never outmaneuver God. God is a billion moves ahead of anything you or the devil might have planned. God is in charge. It's not fatalism. God is in control. Listen to the word of God. Psalm 115 verse 3. Our God is in the heavens and he does as he pleases. Proverbs 16 9. The heart of man plans his way. But the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of man. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You see the problem is. Is that we're planning. The The problem isn't the planning. The problem is planning and ignoring God in the process. That's the problem. And so. He's giving us a reminder that we need to acknowledge God in our plans. We need to remember to acknowledge God. Colossians 3, 2, I quoted this earlier. Set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. Remember God. It's good to plan, but remember that God is in control and I'm not and you're not. God's in charge. Trusting in God is our only true source of security for the future. Look in your Bibles. Turn in your Bibles. If you brought your Bibles, whether you got it on your phone or whatever it is, 
Matthew chapter 6. Let this be a reminder what Jesus said about trusting God as our only source of security for the future. Matthew 6, and look down at verse 19. Matthew 6, verse 19. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Go down to verse 25. Therefore, Jesus says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Don't be stressed about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Some of you need to underline that. Are you not more valuable than the birds and the animals? And which of you, by being anxious or stressed out, can add a single hour to their span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And here's the point. But if God so clothes grass, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious. Do not be stressed. How many times is Jesus saying, don't be anxious, don't be stressed? Yeah, a lot. What are we going to eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? He says, for the Gentiles, those are non-Jews. In our term, those are what unbelievers, people that don't know God. Seek, in fact, one version, I don't know if it's the NIV, said, chase or run after these things. Yet your heavenly Father, what does it say? Knows that you need them all. So what's the remedy, Jesus? Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God, His righteousness, and all these will be added. Paul would say, God works all things together for good to those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. We believe in the sovereignty of God. Someone said that every man or woman on their knees is a Calvinist. Some of you just meditate on that for a minute. So James states that life goes quick and that God is in control over every aspect of life. His words imply another truth. And that is a reasoning to avoid. Pride is a poison. There's a reasoning, there's a mindset, a reasoning that we need to avoid. Verse 13, reeks with arrogance. Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such and do this and do that. There's no mention of God. You know what somebody said one time that uh, one of the subtleties in a lot of our television sitcoms 
is that they portray life without God, even acknowledging that there is a God that exists. And so we have a whole mindset and culture that we live, and there, you know, he, he's not there. There's, a, there's an arrogance. I know when I'm going to start my business. I know, when I'm, I know where I'm going to live. I know how long I'm going to live there. I know what I'll be doing when I'm living there, and, and I don't know what's going to happen to me while I'm living there. In other words, somehow I know all this, and yet the Bible says you don't know anything. You don't even know what's going to happen in the next hour. And yet you're planning as if you know it all. Talk about planning. I read how and maybe one of the reasons why our Western culture has fallen behind is because the Chinese have a 100-year plan for the advancement of their nation economically, militarily. Yeah. We don't even know what we're doing two months from now. We're still trying to figure out what we're going to do about ISIS. Hello? What should that tell you? There's nothing wrong with planning. It's planning without God. And it's an arrogance. It's a boasting that I don't need God. Well, you know, those who built the Titanic had an arrogance, didn't they? On the evening of April 14th, Titanic's wireless operators... Jack Phillips and Harold Bride had received ice warnings from ships in the area, and some of the messages had been given to the bridge. That's where the captain was. One warning was from a ship that came in about 9.40 p.m., and it was not marked, uh, uh, it was not marked uh, so that means that the captain should have seen it and signed off on it, and he probably never saw it. And the message was ice report, and it had the Longitude and latitude locations were a heavy pack of ice and a great number of large icebergs are located. Weather is clear, but there's these icebergs. And the Titanic still was heading straight for this area where these icebergs were. And they began to see, receive other messages. One was from a nearby ship called the Californian. And it was trying to send messages of warning because they weren't getting any response back from the Titanic. And finally, the Titanic operator told the Californian operator, another ship, to stop bugging them, to stop transmitting. And this was the message they wired, shut up, shut up, I am busy. They turned off their wireless and went to bed. The other ship said, okay. Over 1,500 people died because of arrogance. In fact, when the Titanic was launched, it's recorded that one employee of the famed White Star Line said, this is a ship even God can't sink. Practical atheism says, I've got all my tomorrows all planned out, and I'm going to live to see every one of them happen And I'm sure the Lord will approve. We do that in relationships. We meet who we want. We marry who we want. And then come before some preacher and say, Now God, affirm and bless what we have done. We've left you out of it, but we want you to bless our marriage. And I wonder if God says, Okay. (laughs) Hope you know what you're asking for. (laughs) You may not like it, but all right, I'll do it. Jesus told the parable about the rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, arrogance, 
What should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. And then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself as I'm sitting back on my porch with my L.L. Bean shoes drinking my Budweiser, I'll say, friend, you store it away for many years to come. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? And then Jesus said, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but but not have a rich relationship with God. No U-Hauls being dragged behind hearses. Practical atheism. Let me give you a couple of quick activities that have, I believe, helpful. Number one, we need verse 15. What does James say? Instead, say instead. Instead, he's given him some grace. All right. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. What should we do? We need to confess daily. Hourly, our complete dependency and submission to God, if the Lord wills. Which is a way of saying, whatever the Lord wants, that's what I want. Let me ask the Lord about it. Oftentimes, I'm too quick. Instead of saying, let me wait a little bit, I need to pray about it. Even though I might really know what, you know, I think the but I need to pray about it. What am I saying? I'm saying, God... I'm giving you the room here to direct me in this. Oh, but it's a good deal. I mean, it's got no interest for four years and the payments we can handle. How do you know you're going to have that job two weeks from signing that overextended debt that you think is what you should have? Maybe God has a different way. Maybe God has something different. Let me check with you, Lord. Let me ask of you. Let me talk. In other words, let me confess. Confess my submission. Paul did that several places. He said, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. Perhaps now at last by the will of God I may may succeed in coming to you if by the will of God. So if Paul confesses his dependency on the sovereignty of God, how much more should we do? I'll go to that college, Lord willing. I'll take that job, Lord willing. I'll marry this person, Lord willing. I'll spend my time today doing this or doing that. I'll make plans about tomorrow, Lord willing. I'll take up that ministry, Lord willing. I respect people when I ask them about committing to something and they say, let me pray about it. Instead of doing it because they feel pressured. Usually that, they're about a life of about a month if they do it under pressure. But if God does it, you know what? They're doing it as unto the Lord. They don't need me to congratulate them. They don't need me to announce their name and put it on Facebook. Because they're doing it unto the Lord. They're not doing it because Tim talked them into it. Because whatever somebody can talk you into, somebody else can talk you out of. I need to pray about it. I need to think about it. I need to hear God's voice. Secondly, not only confess your dependency and your submission to God, but secondly, commit to take action with what you confess. Look at verse 17. 
verse 17, back in James. So whatever, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him or her, it is a sin. Sometimes we use that verse out of, con- verse out of context to, you know, as far as sins of omission or whatever. But in context, it just means in light of everything I'm saying, now you know, and if you don't do it, it's sin. You are accountable what you and I know. James is saying, look, in light of everything I've told you, now you know what to do and the right thing to do. And if you don't do it, it's sin. What is sin? Practical atheism. Saying, ah, you know, I don't really think he's there. Oh, I might believe the doctrinal statement of the church, but really, he's not that involved in my life. Outside of God we trust on my Florida license plate. That's about it. Bible is clear that we are to live lives where God is the center. I like what R.C. Sproul has a statement. He says, right now counts forever. What does he mean by that? He means everything that we do today has an effect on eternity. Isn't that what Jesus said, those you gave a cup of cold water to and you fed? That meaningless action in the sense that we were just doing it to help, it had an eternal weight and impact, right? Right now counts forever. Life is short. Life is quick. It goes fast. So live it under the umbrella of a God who knows how to feed you, Know how to clothe you. Knows how to take care of you. In fact, he's so good that he wouldn't even let us go to hell. He sent Jesus, his very best, to die, to atone, to bring new life. But we always have to watch out for that incipient pride that, that creeps in where we begin to say, oh, but I don't need to pray about this. I know. Always coming, confessing, my dependency on God, and then committing myself to doing what I've just affirmed with my mouth. There is a right biblical view of confession, by the way. It hadn't just been hijacked by the health and wealth guys. There is a biblical view. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Hello? Okay? So there is a right way to confess, biblically. Stephen Olford is attributed with this statement, and I love it. It's always a convicting reminder when this one life is passed. Only that which is done for Christ will last. That's it. That's it. But the good news is that if you do not know Christ, if you do not know the Lord, the good news is what we're talking about. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's simple like this. That Use the illustration that I sometimes use of my wallet. That we are born, the Bible says that we are born with the burden of sin. We have a burden of sin we can't get rid of. We come into this life as sinful men and women. And it's this sin that separates us, a holy God that's pure and holy. It's this sin that keeps us from a relationship with our Creator. So what did God do? He sent His perfect, clean, pure, sinless Son 
to take our sin. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that our sin was laid upon Christ. He became the sin bearer. He who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might be freed unto new life. And the Bible says that His atonement was proven, that it was complete, final, and finished because the Bible says that He was raised from the dead not as a sin bearer, but as a Lord. And so therefore, based upon what Jesus has done, we can now have perfect fellowship and relationship and be one with Christ. Guys, that's the gospel. And if you have not affirmed that for your life, then I encourage you to do that now. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we submit ourselves under your sovereignty today, reminding ourselves that Lord, without you, we can do nothing. Lord, if there are those in this room here today that have not truly with a heart submitted their lives to the lordship of your son, Lord, I pray, God, that they would do that, not on what they don't know, but what they do know, that Jesus loves me, that Jesus died for my sins, and that if I would confess that I'm a sinner, And that I need the life that Jesus offers. That Jesus will come into my life. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. And make me a new creature in Christ. All I have to do is ask. All I have to do is ask. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you will be saved. So Father, today as we are reminded about the brevity of life, the shortness, the quickness of this life, that we live our lives. I do it. I plan church events. I plan sermons, forgetting that, God, what do you want to do? What do you want to say? It's all of us. That we live our lives within your, in your hands. Let's stand to our feet as we close in worship this morning.